Welcome to today's Immigration Hour. Uh, this is your host, Charles Cook. Great to be back. Uh, I was out last week uh, in the wonderful country of Peru. We had a wonderful opportunity to uh, attend an open house for the LDS Temple in Atiquipa, Peru, one of my most favorite places in the world, and to spend time in uh, what is truly uh, nothing short of uh, magical, the Sacred Valley outside of Cusco. So it's great to be back. Uh, if you did get a chance to go to Peru, don't, don't miss Atiquipa and Cusco. It's really, they're both remarkable places. I think you'd really love them, regardless of uh, where you come from. It's a great place, and of course, the food is wonderful. Uh, while I was gone, I would love to tell you that nothing happened. Uh, but that's not, the way the, uh, that's not the way the immigration ball drops, uh, so to speak, these days. It, is, it has become um, literally a daily parade of nuttiness. Uh, in the immigration service. And, and it's not just, oh, ha-ha, that's kind of crazy what you did. The destructive nature of the Trump administration's efforts uh, in literally rewriting immigration policy, regardless of what the law says, it will take a generation to fix. Uh, keep in mind, they are dismantling policies that have taken decades to put into place because Democratic administrations and prior pro-immigration Republican administrations were very slow to change. They, did, they, they, just, they never suspected that the nativists, that the know-nothings, that the anti-immigrations would ever have the power they have. They just never thought about that. And so they, no efforts were made to put into place policies and laws um, that were specifically designed to make sure that these, these anti-immigrationists could literally destroy the legal immigration process. Um, so uh, it will take a, a, a Senate uh, run by somebody who is willing to make positive immigration changes, a House willing to make positive immigration changes, and a president willing to make positive immigration changes. I don't see that happening in 2020. Uh, I don't see any real possibility that the uh, Senate's going to flip back to being run by the Senate the, by the Democrats. Uh, I see the Republicans continue to nominate and elect anti-immigration nativists, even though the vast majority of, of my old party uh, is not that way. Uh, but the far right, who's who, and these nativists are the ones that win these crazy primaries where nobody votes. And you end up getting, you know, people like Marsha Blackburn in Congress, uh, who really it's a Senate with no business really being U.S. senators because they don't understand the, the sanctity and the sacredness of that position. Um, and, of course, you have those that now, you know, fawn over Trumpism. They've been fully converted uh, and uh, literally uh, do his bidding. Uh, but there's some, there's some interesting news that happened last week I want to talk about. We're also going to touch on Senate Bill 386 as well uh, and the Relief Act about where that's going a little bit later in the show. Uh, first, I want to talk about the wall. Uh, you know, the wall is, uh, is actually being built uh, one little mile at a time, uh, but it is going very, very slow. And it appears that, that uh, the president is upset at the pace uh, of the wall being built, which, of course, he promised would be fully built by the end of his first term. And... Uh, we'll maybe we'll get like 100 miles, 50 miles, whatever. Um, right now, uh, the president decided to put Jared Kushner as the de facto project manager of the wall. 
you know, you got to love this. Um, let's put a guy who's basically failed at everything he did and put him in charge. Well, I think it's the greatest thing in the world uh, for this. Um, he is uh, supposed to be pressing CBP and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to expedite the process of taking private land needed for the project. Now, think about that. What is Donald Trump? He is a developer. He wants your land. Hello, Republicans, you know, don't tread on me. Don't take my property. Leave me alone. Uh, you think this is okay? Uh, maybe maybe, you, maybe your conversion is full into Trumpism and you don't care that the United States government is seizing your land um, and making it unusable and not just putting a wall on it, but the roads and the infrastructure that destroy large chunks of that land. Um, and uh, there are over 800 uh, uh, condemnation actions in, uh, in effect or seizure actions in effect in the, the coming months to make this happen. Uh, he wants to build 400 miles by Election Day. I, I think that's virtually impossible. Um, but, um, and, uh, you know, the thing is, Trump could have had it all built. All he had to do was say, all right, DACA kids get green cards. But let's not forget, the deal on the table was green cards for kids with DACA and return for the entire wall. That was the deal that Trump walked away from. Um, and uh, the wall is, of course, penetrable. You can cut it with a saw from uh, Home Depot. Um, some dudes in, in San Diego, um, uh, in a portion of the old wall, cut a big enough slot for uh, a truck to drive through. They were, of course, caught. But, I mean, you know, walls uh, are meant to be climbed. Uh, they, they have these videos of kids climbing these. But Jared's on the job. So don't worry, everybody. Jared's on the job, and we'll see what happens uh, if, uh, if uh, by this time next year, uh, with Jared's extraordinary efforts on the wall, Middle East peace, um, and uh, every other crazy thing that Trump has him doing. Uh, this is, you know, this is, you wonder why are there people out there who can make this happen? Sure. But none of them wanted to work for Trump. And so basically, Trump is playing with the B team. The A teamers that would normally be in a Republican administration that would be helping it move along aren't there. They're sitting this one out. And uh, that hampers Trump's, which I think is great. It hampers his ability to do more damage. Uh, but it also means that uh, people that are wildly unfit for government service are currently running the government. Uh, and again, cleaning this up, whether it's uh, in 2021 or 2025, is going to take an extraordinary amount of effort. And, and frankly, we, we may never recover. And I'm going to give you a great example of that. Uh, a lot of our listeners are aware of uh, the, migra the, quote, migrant protection protocols, the MPP on the southern border, which basically force um, uh, people seeking asylum uh, for fear of returning to their home country, whether they're from the Northern Triangle in Central America or they're from Africa or from Asia, to wait at the border in, in squalid refugee camps in Mexico. Um, for those uh, people coming in, children, for example, we know that there is a number of cases where parents are sim have simply given up and are, are literally so desperate 
that they bring their children to the, to the, to the border and leave them, and leave them there. Uh, think about that. They bring them to the border and they leave them there. Uh, and um, what's happening as a result of that uh, is now we have, a, a, once again, a flood of unaccompanied minors uh, coming into the border because you're not going to stop people from trying to protect their families. This is an article from a couple days ago. Um, Mary Lou uh, was close enough to Texas to see an American flag hovering in the Rio Grande. Her kids were sick. Josue was five. Madeline was three. The small family huddled in a nylon camping tent with two blankets last week when the temperature sank to 37 degrees. The children started coughing. Mary Lou said, then their fingers and toes turned bright red. The camp's doctor began as a case of frostbite. So what did she do? She accompanied her children. They'd crossed the border in the summer, only to be sent back to Mexico to await their asylum case as part of MPP. As they grew sicker, Mary Lou had to make a decision. Mary Lou was fleeing gang violence in Honduras. She knew that unaccompanied children were admitted into the U.S. without going through the MPP bureaucracy and the months-long wait. The 29-year-old mother, who, like others here, asked not to be identified by her last name for fear it could affect her asylum case, believed that returning to Honduras would be suicide. So she bundled up her children and all their donated winter clothes and scrawled a letter to the U.S. immigration on a torn piece of paper. My children are very sick and exposed to too many risks, she wrote. I don't have any other way to get them to safety. She pressed the letter into Josue's hands and poured into the children the three customs and border protection agents in the middle of the bridge. Josue told me, please don't send us, Mary Lou said, crying, Mary, but as a mother, I knew it was the best decision for the bridge. She then sprinted to the bottom of the bridge, watched through the fence as her children turned themselves in, weeping and wondering when she would see them again, hoping they would find their way to her husband, who had entered the United States and applied for asylum before the MPP was implemented. He was allowed to say. Wow. Wow. Um, um, you know, let's call that Mary Lou's choice. Um, this is what we have become under the Trump administration. You know, letting Mary Lou into the United States would not harm anybody. It would not hurt us in any way. It would not diminish us as a country. It would not make us worse off. But not letting her in does all those things. The numbers suggest that at least 47,000 migrants have been sent back to Mexico. Uh, 9,000 of those cases have been completed, and only 11 have been granted asylum. And I know some of the lawyers who want asylum cases. Um, one woman said, it's becoming clear to us that this whole thing is a lie. They tell us to wait and wait and wait, but no one here gets asylum. Um, this is, uh, Mexican government is not doing anything. Uh, there is squalid showers and bathroom facilities. Um, the UN refugee agencies, UNCAR, says the border cities in Tamaulipas state where Matamoros is located are among the most insecure and dangerous in the world. People are frequently kidnapped and raped, held for small amounts of ransom, whatever money they have or family in the United States. And it's, uh, it's becoming awful. And yet here we are, um, that it is, 
it's just heartbreaking. I recommend you reading the Washington Post article. It is absolutely heartbreakingly awful that we as a country are doing this to people. Victor left El Salvador with his daughter Arleth, now 10, after she was sexually assaulted by a man affiliated with the local gang. Victor pressed charges. He carries court documents and hospital records to substantiate the case. The man was sentenced to 12 years in prison for sexual aggression of a minor. As soon as he was sentenced, Victor said the gang members came after the family. In August, they fled. Victor and Arleth were sent back to Metamoros on August 28th before tents were available. They spent 15 days sleeping outside. Eventually, he found a job in a Chinese restaurant earning $7 a day. He saved up and bought a camping tent. But after two months, Arleth was sick, vomiting all the time. Their tent had flooded twice in the rain. After her assault, she struggled to remain calm in large groups. She hated walking across the camp to use one of the portable toilets. Victor took her several times to Doctors Without Borders nurse who came to the camp twice a week, but she never improved. In late September, on Arleth's 10th birthday, Victor bought her a cake and five candles. He asked someone in the neighborhood to take a picture of them smiling. When her health did not improve, Victor asked her what she thought of crossing alone. She told me, Dad, I just want to be out of this place. These parents have been forced to consider an unthinkable choice to save their children by sending them into the U.S. alone or keep them in northern Mexico where they're exposed to severe illness, kidnapping, torture, and rape. Um, Victor, in the end of October, Victor walked Arleth to the edge of the bridge and watched her shuffle towards immigration agents. Victor said that we had never been apart. Her entire life we've been together. People might hear what I did and think I'm a bad parent, but it's the opposite. I did this for my daughter because we have no other choice to save her. For a week, he didn't hear from her. Then she called his mother back in El Salvador. She was at a government shelter somewhere in Texas. The details were hazy. Their mother recorded the message from the daughter to the father. Don't worry, Dad, I'm okay. I hope that you'll see me with me. He played the message over and over and cried. The truth is, I don't have much confidence that my case is going to work out. I'm fighting for it, but I don't know. This is, this is what we as a country have done. You know, we, we could be so much better. We, we could be Reagan's shining city on a hill. It always amazes me that we have this, you know, remarkable Republican president who understood the power of the symbolism of America and how the GOP today is literally tearing that apart, ripping it down, and making it disappear. We're going to take a quick break uh, on the immigration. I'll be back in just a second. We're going to talk about uh, Senate Bill 386 and the Relief Act. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's... Welcome back to the Immigration Hour. This is Charles Cook here at Cook Baxter Immigration. Again, great to be back with you uh, this week after a delightful week in Peru. I want to touch, uh, before we get to 386, I want to touch a little bit about uh, some new uh, stats that have come out on student visas and the fact that student visa enrollment has declined by 10% each year uh, between 2000, end of 2016 to 2019. Uh, this is monumentally terrible uh, for America. Um, and uh, it is uh, really uh, focused on you know, why, why is international student enrollment falling? One, it started with a, with a uh, change in policy by the Trump administration's 
uh, on buy American, hire American, and how that impacted foreign students who come here, get an education, and then uh, try to stay in the United States after their OPT expires through obtaining employment visas and green cards. Uh, the student visas, because of Buy American, Hire American, uh, the uh, consular officers began to look at the student visa holders as gateways into the United States, into the, quote, labor market, and thus saw it as a violation of Buy American, Hire America. So you see, under the Obama administration, you had a kind of a loosening of the F-1 standard in regards to do you intend to return to your own country? What is your purpose of studying in the United States? Um, and it became harder, starting in January of 2017, to get harder and harder to get a student visa to come to the U.S. Or if you had a student visa, it became harder and harder to renew, especially if you were near the end of your studies. So because it became harder to get the visa, that then causes students to say, well, why apply to the U.S. if I could apply to Canada or to Europe for my education in an English-speaking country? And so those countries... And Australia have seen a rise in student visa holders, while at the same time we have seen almost a 40% decline in the number of international students in the United States. And uh, this is, uh, uh, this is uh, going to be, going to have long-term uh, implications for the U.S., particularly for our foreign policy. Uh, right now, uh, the... Uh, the, the number of the new number of student visas coming into the United States and, and the falling numbers as a result are uh, what that means for us going forward is presidents, prime ministers, foreign leaders will have had a few lesser opportunity to study in the United States than ever before. Right now, there's probably more than the last number I saw was about 85 foreign heads of state or prime ministers or senior foreign leadership had studied in the United States. Think about that. Had studied in the United States. That means those countries are predisposed to have had a positive experience. Uh, right now, Australia and Canada's numbers have skyrocketed um, as far. In the last year, for example, in the 2018-2019 New enrollment of international students was at 269,000, compared to 300,000 in 2015-16, a decline of 10%. Uh, this, is a, this is a huge number, uh, and it's declined for the third straight year. Um, the only, of course, silver lining uh, from uh, Stuart Anderson's numbers are that the decline was smaller this year than in last year's. But this is a foreign policy nightmare. Now, of course, when I posted this on the Twitter machine, uh, I began to get attacked immediately by the pro S386 uh, folks who view this, uh, that not passing 386 is the reason that we've had student visa numbers decline. Of course, that's nonsense. Um, but uh, I, I appreciate you trying to bring uh, crazy stuff into the, uh, uh, into this, uh, uh, into the machine. Uh, into the, the argument. The um, Indian, Indian nationals take up about 17% of foreign students, maybe 18% of foreign students. Uh, Chinese students take up a larger percentage of the, than that, and the rest are spread throughout the world. Um, where are we, you know, in light of the fact that um, uh, 
you know, why are there lesser numbers? Why are there uh, fewer people coming in? Um, it is, um, uh, it's really interesting because I, I don't think it really has much to do with waiting lines on visas. Uh, I think it has to do with the rhetoric of the president. I mean, I think the political rhetoric, the political climate of the U.S. today does, in fact, give people pause to come to the U.S. One, two, it also, um, uh, the, the, it, it's a known known, as uh, our former Secretary of Defense would say, that it's much harder to get a student visa than it ever is. You know, just a Peru, of course, and they were talking about, you know, do you think I can get a student visa? I hear it's much harder to get it these days. So people are kind of dissuaded from applying because of the nationalism that Trump has brought to the forefront of the United States. And uh, because it's much harder and people don't want to waste their money if they know they can get a student visa to a different country. Now, there's still the demand to come to the United States. Um, it is uh, you know, really interesting to see uh, how that works. It is, um, but uh, what we're seeing, um, a lot of people, uh, a lot of lawyers especially, that see these... Uh, uh, have seen the reduction in, in folks on student visas. Uh, a friend of mine, Zach Sanders, who's an avogado, uh, he told me Xavier University has seen this. I've seen this at Emory. Uh, I've seen it at UGA. And, it, and it's because of the impact of the changes and really nothing to do um, with 386. Now, it's interesting. Some of the responses, because we move into our 386 discussion, um, what we see is uh, the, the supporters of 386 want to bring everything around to three to six. So one guy named Real Raj SV says, nobody come, will come. What's the future they have? Lifelong backlog. Okay, but you're here, you came. So you think people aren't gonna stay because of that? Um, it's, uh, it's not that there is uh, uh, a lifelong backlog. It's that the way Congress created our immigration laws uh, with these per country limits have not kept up with the times. And I've, as I've argued for a long time, we do need to get rid of the per country limits, but we need to do it in a way that doesn't deprive other people, besides Indian nationals, of the right to immigrate to the United States in a timely fashion. Because ultimately the argument for 4386 is, hey, we deserve to immigrate in a timely fashion. Well, that argument applies to everybody. Everybody deserves to to immigrate in a timely fashion. 10 years is not a timely fashion. All 386 does is shift the backlog to everybody, then everybody's got to wait. And the argument of the 386ers is, well, then everybody will fight for a change in the law. That's not how it works. Uh, everybody's fighting for uh, a legalization program. That hasn't worked for 25 years. You know, you, you, get one, you get one shot at this. Once Congress thinks they fixed it, they're not going to come back and refix it. So this is reshuffling the jet chairs in the Titanic. It's robbing Peter to pay Paul. What we need is a real solution like the Relief Act. Now, so what's going on? The Relief Act is, is, is as we've talked about before, uh, is the bill sponsored by Senator Durbin uh, to try to bring some sensibility to the per-country limit elimination, to try to do it evenly, uh, and to not harshly punish other countries uh, for uh, the backlog creating, created from the tax use of mostly Indian national employees. Um, so there has to be a solution for Indian nationals. I'm fully behind that. 
But 386 is a is not a good bill. And of course, added on top of that is the H1B restrictions in it. And the set aside, 7,000 person set aside within that bill, which you would not need under Durbin's bill. You don't need that set aside. So all of a sudden, man, there's 7,000 visas no longer available that that are going to push forward uh, folks is, as physical therapists and nurses. Uh, so what will happen? Well, everybody will go to nursing school and physical therapy school to get one of those 7,000, and that will become backlog. I mean, again, shuffling the deck chairs in the Titanic is not the solution to this problem. The solution's in the Relief Act, not counting spouses. Now, the reaction to that is, well, Congress is never going to create more visas. Well, they are because the H-2A bill is going to pass, which creates more visas. Um, and uh, so th that argument doesn't hold any water anymore now that the, H, uh, uh, the H-2A legislation has passed the House. Um, it is, and, and will certainly pass the Senate as well, because many powerful senators, uh, Republicans, are behind that bill because they realize the problem with the, which the H-2A program. It is, uh, where are we now, though? Uh, there's been no hearing. Uh, as before I left for Peru, the status was that Lee wouldn't talk to Durbin, uh, Cornyn didn't want hearings, and therefore both bills are dead. I've talked to lobbyists from senior uh, organizations, some organizations, very powerful organizations, who tell me both bills are dead. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, I think that both bills can, in fact, uh, be reconciled. Uh, mostly into, into the Relief Act, but you can incorporate the H stuff into the Relief Act because then you're getting something for something as opposed to right now getting, uh, Grassley's getting his H stuff for nothing. He, 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 he coughs up nothing in return. Cornyn's reluctance, who Cornyn chairs the, Judici the Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on Immigration this year, uh, Cornyn uh, has been told by Tech uh, out of Austin not to have a hearing on this bill. So Tech is still fighting to only pass 386. Tim Cook, of course, has come out and talked about that. But uh, Durbin, on the other hand, uh, is under a great deal of pressure. I mean, how many times can you be called a racist and finally just say, you know, heck with it, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cave. Durbin's not going to do that because he realizes um, the long-term damage to U.S. immigration. Uh, we look at it in the context of foreign direct investment. Um, uh, which is about half a trillion dollars a year. 0.17% uh, of that comes from India. Uh, and, and large chunks from, come from Europe and Canada. If you can't immigrate your executives, your managers, your specialized knowledge workers as part of your investment strategy, then you're going to invest elsewhere. So there's, there's a real negative economic impact uh, to this. And Durbin also realizes the unjustness of just lifting per country limits on, on, on a few employment-based categories instead of doing it across the board. Um, and uh, I tweeted a few weeks ago, which did not get any response uh, about, uh, you know, why don't we lift the uh, family-based uh, numbers as well? And, and the answer is easy, because Mexico. Because nobody but Mexicans and some Filipinos would get green cards under... The 386 version of lifting numbers, nobody else would get green cards for a decade. Remember, there are several million um, Mexicans in the line on family-based categories before you get to anybody from any other country, including India. So no Indian family members would immigrate. They would all, all Indian family members would be pushed back for a decade to accommodate Mexicans. Now, if you were truly upset 
about, quote, nationality discrimination, um, then you would demand that all, all, like the relief bill, that all per country limits be lifted. When that happens, and uh, 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 that amendment is offered at 386, I think a lot more people would jump onto the bandwagon of 386. But again, it's, it's, 386 is really about what's in it for me. Um, there's been some terrible stories that have come out of, of, of uh, visa, visa waiters dying. Uh, there are thousands more of those stories in the family-based category than the 14 that have occurred uh, uh, since 386 been around. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it, how many of these horrible stories can you swap rather than us working together to push a bill and to get co-sponsors on it? Can you imagine if the supporters of 386 said, you know what, we're going to get together and we're going to go to Durban and say, you know what, we're going to push your bill. What do you need us to do? Who do we need to get on board? All of a sudden, if all of these senators, these Republican senators and congressmen who were told that 3D6 was no longer the way, that Relief Act was the best way to handle this problem long term, so you wouldn't have to come back. Congress does not want to come back. They're not going to come back to an immigration issue. So if you really, truly want to fix this, the only real fix is the Relief Act. Let's, let's wrap our heads around this. It's the only real fix to this bill, uh, to this law. And we all want that fix to happen. Yes, I'm sure there's some folks on the, uh, on the uh, nativist side of the argument here that are against 386 that, that won't like relief, but that's okay. The vast majority of us that are opposed to relief are opposed because of the, uh, to the 386 is because of the long-term damage it does which 386 alleviates. And all of a sudden, if we get all immigrants working together on one bill, which 386 can't do that, it will never do that. All the supporters of 386 are doing are creating disharmony and, 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 and prejudice against the supporters of the bill because it hurts so many people. Now, I mean, I understand why you want 386. I get it. Um, but there's an alternative relief out there that can work if we push all the three to six support over to relief, and then you've got every country's immigrants working together, you've got the entire immigration bar, which already supports the Relief Act, which, which does not support three to six, moving forward, and we can make a real difference uh, in Congress and uh, giving that support to Durban, who has been a hero for all immigrants for a very, very long time. Hey, it's been a great show this week. Thank you for listening uh, to the Immigration Hour. Um, if you have any comments, you can, of course, reach me on Twitter at ccook, C-K-U-C-K, unless I blocked you because you were saying terrible things about me. Uh, and uh, you can also email me at ccook, C-K-U-C-K, at immigration.net. It's great to be with you this week. This is your host, Charles Cook of the Immigration Hour. We'll see you next week.